Welcome to Innovation Booster, the Hattrick podcast about health technology for more healthy years of life. In this podcast, we'll talk about everything related to research and innovation in health technology. And I am your host, Dr. Ruth Koopsvontjag. Hattrick is the health technology research and innovation cluster, born and brought to life in the Northern Netherlands. Hattrick brings together academic research, health technology and clinical practice in order to tackle the challenges faced by today's healthcare system and to speed up innovation through the interplay of knowledge, health technology and business development. In the Innovation Booster sessions, we bring together researchers, companies and medical professionals to talk about valuable themes and topics in health technology. From robotic systems that help surgeons perform complex operations to the newest organ preservation solutions, we see a rapid increase of technology and robotics in the operation room. In this ninth episode of the Innovation Booster podcast, we will explore the development and implementation of technology in the OR. We will learn everything about how smart technology in robotics can make a huge difference for both health professionals and patients. What are the newest developments when it comes to tech in the operation room? Is this giant leap towards embracing complex high-tech systems innovative? Or are we being bombarded with technical solutions searching for clinical problems? And how do we ensure that these technologies really fit the needs of surgeons and patients? Which human factors do you have to take into account when developing state-of-the-art surgical tools? We will dive into this very interesting theme with three very special guests with a variety of backgrounds. First, we welcome Christoph Hoenis from Flux Robotics. He will learn us everything about how we can integrate magnetic robotics in the OR in order to empower surgeons. Welcome, Christoph. Thank you. Secondly, we welcome Professor Henry Leuvening from the UMCG. Henry will share the story about the development of the Groningen Preservation Machine to illustrate how Northern inventions fueled worldwide change in the OR. And thirdly, we will talk to Elisabeth Wilhelm, Assistant Professor in Control of Robotic Systems for Assistance and Rehabilitation at the Faculty of Science and Engineering at the University of Groningen. Welcome, Henry, and welcome, Elisabeth, as well. Thanks. Thanks. And I think, uh, Christoph, this m- might be an interesting question for you, but maybe, uh, Henry, you can fill, fill up. Could you sketch the historical background of developing and implementing technology and robotics in the OR? Where or how did it start and where are we now? Well, that's a great question. I was asking myself that question when I was writing my dissertation uh, in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And I searched for the definition of the word surgeon because that's where you link the technologies with being implemented in the ORs and also how that influences the lives of patients is the surgeon, right? And did, and you, did you find that definition? Yes, yes, of course. Okay. So um, where that, uh, there were several loose definitions that didn't really tie back to the original meaning. But as far as my research went, it uh, goes back to ancient Greek. And uh, the founder, in, uh, in uh, quotation marks, of, of medicine, um, Hi- Hippocrates, he sort of 
started looking towards how we can cure diseases um, without the natural, without waiting for for the natural effect of it, right? And he basically called to others to pioneer techniques to come up with solutions that could help with treating diseases. And of course, if you have to come up with something that doesn't exist yet, uh, of course, as, as as entrepreneurs and as researchers know that it could be quite difficult. Um, but what they what they basically brought to the table or to the operating table, for that matter, uh, is um, manual labor. And if you translate that back from old from ancient Greek, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a term which is chirurgia, and that means uh, masterpieces of the hand. And hierarchia was the first term used for surgeons or for surgeries. And yeah, in, in that case, it's always related to you being a master of your own abilities while uh, helping patients in the process. Whether it's using your real hands um, or using robotic hands, so of to course. say. Yeah, of course. So, and, and when do we see the first examples of the use of robotics in UR? So we fast forward f- from the ancient Greek to? To uh, about, uh, I don't know, the, when the first, uh, there was a Puma arm, what I think was in the 80s uh, or the 90s somewhere. And it was essentially a very, a very basic uh, robotic mechanism, pretty similar to, to a linked uh, mechanism connected with a, with a spring. And um, this mechanical arm was to was used in the OR for um, uh, I don't know if it's a correct term clinically, but transurethral resections. And okay, you have to help me there. It's it's basically um, a type of surgery which is done uh, to I think close the bladder or assist with uh, problems that occurs around the bladder. Um, and of course, I'm speaking under correction here because this is usually the feedback that we get from clinicians is what intervention we should focus on. And I think there the robot arm was merely holding a tool. So it wasn't actively involved, but this was the first arm that was used within the context of a surgery. And that uh, is, of course, a few decades ago. And look where we are now. Now, now these arms are practically uh, conducting the surgeries with the with the human in the loop, of course, but much more advanced. Okay, um, so look where we are now. Uh, I really would like to learn more about uh, from you about some examples of these newest developments. Could you each give an example of a new technology that is currently being developed or that has very recently entered the OR? Henry, I would like to start with you. Um, could you maybe also share the story about the Groningen Preservation Machine? <laughs> Yeah, that sounds very, uh, very nice, Groningen uh, Preservation Machine. Although when we uh, first pitched that into the, uh, let's say, the scientific international work, they didn't like the word Groningen very much because for them it was, of course, not uh, pronounceable. No, it's um, a really tongue breaker for yeah, internationals. Yeah. So later on, we just called it Organ Perfusion Machines or uh, um, Organ Assist. That was the company that that uh, that uh, aro- arose from that. Uh, but it all started with actually a clinical problem. And this clinical problem uh, consisted of the lack of enough suitable organs for transplantation. 
And because there are not enough donors, uh, people are looking for alternative sources. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in, when transplantation is relatively new, so it only started really to fly off in the 80s. So only the, we only do transplantation for 50 years. So it's relatively new. Uh, and it means that you, you take an organ from someone who died. Mm -hmm. And of course, you do not die from good health. There's something happened. So this organ is injured. And you transplant this organ into another person. And actually, it's a miracle that it works. Uh, because this patient died. And now this new organ needs to live for another 20 or hopefully longer into uh, a patient. And into our a goal new was body. in a new body. So yeah. our goal was to keep that organ alive between the donation and the transplantation. So outside a human outside body. Outside a human body. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Um, so, and, and uh, this was already done earlier uh, by just cooling down the organ. Just like you do with your your uh, meat, you put it in the fridge because it takes longer to be to become bad. It's exactly the same with uh, with with organs for transplantation. So, so just put the human organs in the fridge. Yes. Well, that's still going on in okay. most of the countries, and we still do that. Uh, but the problem was, I, I hope, in special organ fridges, not in the no, not oh, not, hmm. not 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 really. There, not there are polystyrene <laughs> boxes with ice. They're, but but they're, in between the veggies and the no, not in between uh -huh, the okay. veggies, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but they're very very simple. Very similar uh, to yeah. To just I always compare it with a goldfish in uh, in a bowl. This is exactly what it looks like. So you have a kidney in a plastic bag, and you put it on ice, close it, and bring it to uh, the recipient hospital. Really low tech, costs only a couple of hundred euros. That's it. Um, and that's also uh, immediately the problem uh, from a business point of view, because you have to compete with these 200 euros uh, to become, to have a, an, an, interve an intervention or an invention. So what we said, we want to keep these organs alive. And as we are sitting here, our organs are alive because we have a heart yeah, that pumps blood. blood. Flow through the organs. Yes, and the blood is carrying oxygen, oxygen and nutrients. Mm. Uh, and we have lungs mm -hmm. to also get the oxygen into the blood. Okay, so, so you need a kind of artificial heart lung machinery. Exactly. So what we did, we actually borrowed <laughs> the, the technology from heart lung machines. Okay. I want to ask a question. How does this compare with limb? limb transplantation so if you for example you lose a finger is that similar to an organ in that it can be kept alive uh, yes yes it's it's similar uh but normally you get your own finger back when you cut it off yeah okay but there are situations also that people get new limbs or even a new face mm -hmm. uh is is possible uh, and the preservation is in in all cases exactly the same uh however organs uh, uh, do not sustain such a long period of time uh, before they need to implant into the patient in the recipient. So heart, for heart, for instance, it only takes four to eight hours. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the time you can, that's your uh, you time can store. That's the time yeah. window. And, okay. that's, and you have to imagine that the donor is in Munich and the recipient is in Amsterdam. So, and then wow. you have to take out this organ, transport. It, transport it. So it's by flight going to Amsterdam. Um, you don't have to go to customs, so that takes, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> yeah. You save uh, like and, one and, or two hours. And then you have to 
put this organ in within six to eight hours. Wow, so the time pressure is really high. It's huge. So everything you can do to widen that time window. Yes. And that increases the, um, the well, the quality of the organ. Exactly. Is, is, is It's a win. Yeah. Yeah. But for being, being able to do that, we need a heart, we need a lung, and we need uh, the blood. And basically, that's what we did. So we started with a pump, replacing the heart, an oxygenator, which is a very normal thing to use in the in uh, in CPB, uh, so in, in open heart surgery, in the heart-lung machines, and we needed tubings, which was also available. So basically, that was the whole idea. And then we started doing, of course, rat experiments, pig experiments, first clinical trials, and then it actually came to the market. Uh, and it's now used all over the world. And could you give us some numbers that illustrate the impact of this invention? Yeah, well, the the, the initial invention uh, was made for uh, kidneys. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we in the Netherlands, we're the first country in the world uh, putting all the donated kidneys on the machine. Uh, and that resulted in less failures after transplantation. So it reduces about 20% failures. Uh, but what's also very important that now we can also use organs that are from the start of not with a super high quality. So if if you would donate your kidney today, it would be of superb quality. Of but, course, because yes, I have excellent health. Excellent yeah. health. I saw <laughs> really you drinking. Hydrate constantly. You yes. saw you drinking water. You have a good weight. Uh, probably no uh, hypertension or no, diabetes. No. Exercise so a lot. Yes, so yes. Exercise <laughs> a lot. So your kidney is uh, great. But actually the majority of the kidneys are now retrieved from older people who oh. die because of a stroke. Mm -hmm. uh, so they already have hypertension, uh, high, blo uh, high blood sugars. So the quality of this kidney is not good. And can you actually increase the quality of the kidney using this preservation machine? Or would no. that be the next no, step? No, it's called a preservation machine. So, so. it's not a reconditioning machine. No. Okay, okay. Uh, so, so actually now we preserve it. Okay. Uh, but we also have machines that can recondition it. Uh, and But then we use warm blood. Okay. Okay, well, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's for, our next, yeah. for our next episode, yeah. yes. A word from our sponsor, ODE, Open Diagnostics Ecosystem. One of the goals of Hattrick, the Life Cooperative and ODE, is to encourage and support medical technology innovations from bench to bed. The ODE Open Diagnostics Ecosystem is happy to help Hattrick to reach a wider audience with their interesting innovation boosters by this valuable podcast. In the Life Cooperative, 45 companies and startups from life sciences and medtech in the north of the Netherlands work together in innovative projects from medicine and diagnostics to medical technology. The ODE Open Diagnosis ecosystem offers access to a network of companies, knowledge institutions, healthcare partners and open innovation facilities that use their knowledge and abilities to develop new techniques for making medical diagnosis. The goal of ODE is to turn the north of the Netherlands into a global expert in the development of innovative diagnostics. Want to know more? Have a look at opendiagnostics.nl. Elisabeth, we haven't heard you yet. Uh, could you share some of the recent projects you are involved in concerning technology in the OR of just or just one ex shining example? 
Yes, sure. So we have one example where we actually were approached by the clinicians because they saw a problem. And the problem was they have this very nice images now. So we know all from TV that imaging in medicine has become from the Small, from the x-rays where you could just see the bones to 3D representation. So if you now take an MRI scan of, for example, a cancer patient, you can see all the organs, you can see where the tumor is located, and that helps them to plan the operation in advance. But during the operation, they face the problem, namely that in the MRI, the patient is lying on the back in a one position. You cannot really move the patient because there is very narrow space in an MRI. And then when they enter the OR, they have to turn the patient to another position so that the robot that they use for the surgery can actually connect to this body. And as soon as the robot starts cutting, the problem of that the patient is in another position gets even worse because then the tissue starts moving as you're disconnecting it. And they have only very small cameras in the robotic um, surgery where they see very limited few. Basically, they see only a few millimeters from where actually their operation tools are. And now in this whole structure that is moved completely, how do you find the tumor back? Ah, and this yeah. is something where they wanted help from us. And what we came up with is using a technology that has been around for a while in the industrial world or is currently coming up in the industrial world, and that's called digital twin. And a digital, digital twin. twin is something that you make a model, basically, in the digital world of your physical system. So we're trying to model the whole patient in the digital world and then we're trying to predict how the organs and all the tissue in the body is moving so that we can give this information to the surgeon. Of course, a model always has a bit of uncertainties and we also need to give the uh, surgeon information about how sure are we actually that the tumor is now going in this direction. And this information we want to play back to the surgeon during the operation so that he has a bit more orientation when he's navigating through the patient. But isn't that, isn't that I mean, it's, a, it's quite a complex, the human body is quite complex in itself. Right? It's unpredictable. So unless you use, well, what, how is this possible to determine in real time, knowing that it's unpredictable? I mean... It's, uh, yeah, to, that, that is a very challenging point. And the challenging point here is that we have to use multiple different mathematical technologies. So the simplest one that you can use is you can think of um, how are objects um, working if they are static. So if we, I, we just turn this around, we know how gravity acts. Mm -hmm. And then we can say, okay, this organ is a bit heavier than the other one, so it should move a bit more forward. But then the other thing is that we have dynamic interactions. For this, we need a second model that we also make, where we look at the dynamic interactions between the operation tools and the organs. How are they going to react if the robot is basically Pushing, pushing against yeah. something. You can imagine that like when you're playing billiard, you're pushing with one ball against the other and then it's going in one direction. So you need to predict where things are going. 
And last but not least, we're also trying to use artificial intelligence to help us with that. And by combining these three different types of modeling techniques, we're trying then later to get to a prediction and also to get to the uncertainty level that we then also need to feedback that the surgeon knows, is this now trustworthy yeah. or not? And is it, can you actually validate that and say that, well, within 99% certain, well, that's... The- <laughs> That would be great. 90% certainty, <laughs> this is where the, the, the organ would be. And um, the, the other thing is with artificial intelligence that is well-structured in a, in a predictable environment. So with something as unpredictable and complex as the human body, how do you um, explain to the surgeon that this is something that would be useful to them? Well, we're here at the very beginning of um, uh, inventions, so we're not yet quite sure what is, uh, how far we can get with this and how reliable our predictions will be. So in contrast to the other inventions which we heard about, this is really a starting point and we have to see in the next upcoming years what is possible and what is not possible. And, and how uh, in an ideal world would this look like if you are able to realize this invention? Um, in in my mind, I see like a, a like a certain screen inside the OR with a like a navigation system, so a Google Maps for the human body, so to say, something like that. But then in three D, would it be? Could it be? Could it look? Or like as a hologram, maybe. Wow. <laughs> you think one step ahead even. Well, there is different technologies that one can use in this case. Like there is, of course, AR, so you could augment the reality. One thing that we cannot take away is, of course, the real view of the surgeon because, yeah, that's the fallback solution. If our model does fail or our model says, yeah, I'm really not sure where to go now where the tumor is, the surgeon can still rely on what he's used to see right now at least that he has some base information so we cannot take that away and we also need to consider that the surgeon has a certain mental capacity and we all know when we see a lot of things going on on the screen it's very hard to focus so we also need to investigate what do we actually need to show a surgeon and that's why we're collaborating with the UMCG and finding out what is actually the things that they need to know and what do we need to represent there that they can get the information where to go and that they really know what to do and that we are not distracting them and adding a new layer of complexity that would make it even harder for them to work with the systems. What, what I really like about your story, Elisabeth, is how it started. It started with the surgeons coming to you and telling you, well, we experienced this problem, we have this need. Um, and I think that's a really important take-home message um, and, an, and a nice um, transition to your story, Christoph. Could you explain to us, uh, using your story as an example, how we make sure that these ne- new technologies really fit the needs of surgeons and patients? Yeah, that is, that is uh, a loaded question. It is sometimes difficult to really pinpoint what they struggle with in terms of their um, mentality and their impression of being a surgeon and why they became surgeons in the first place versus the real struggles, the tangible things that they sit in the workplace with, the occupational hazards. Um, and, And discerning between those two is imperative from the start because like I said earlier, it's easy to complain about something. It's easy to to talk about a problem while in fact it might only be just your 
perspective on that problem, which for someone else is is not at all a, a big deal. Second of all, um, when you look towards whether this is something patients would find uh, useful, that's even more difficult because patients themselves are also then influenced by public uh, perception and the, the the acceptance of technologies in general. Everyone I, has. I could imagine a patient saying, "I don't want the robot uh, operating <laughs> my." Well, blather. Exactly. I want that surgeon. Exactly. I trust him. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Her. And we, uh, him or, 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 or them, uh, the, the, the point is that we have now reached uh, a stage of development in the world where everyone is sort of bombarded by media and by pop culture and by just watching a movie thinking that the next Terminator would be, you know, standing in the OR with a scalpel and trying to to operate on you. So, so really, that that perception is something we also have to keep in mind. When you only go towards this uh, as a, as an engineer or from a technical perspective, you will basically miss the entire point of this technology being utilized. Looking at the channels through which these decision making processes occur in hospitals, first of all, the purchasing managers. What, what type of technology would they introduce to the surgeons? They are essentially deciding whether this has a an economic uh, impact or economic value or improving the, the lives of the patients and or. And or, and, hopefully. Um, second of all, the surgeons, whether they feel that this is empowering them. So that's our focus point to, to, to really reach out to those surgeons who want to be better. And uh, thirdly, whether they come up with these choices to the patients with genetic, you know, you present them with your, their options. You can choose option A, B, or C, uh, how, how they would be influenced by your, by your solution. So that, that, that really becomes quite a, a difficult situation. Should it be something included in shared decision-making? Do you want to be operated by this robot or this uh, really good surgeon? Henry. Yeah, well, uh, the first thing I would like to say is that uh, surgeons are also people and their mentality is uh, they can do. Uh, so they're problem solvers. They're not the, they're not the thinkers in, within medicine, they're the problem solvers. So if you, if you provide them with a solution, it should be something they say, okay, this makes my life easier or it is so interesting that I want to spend time with it to make it, uh, um, well, more interesting. So uh, that was the same with us introducing machine perfusion technology. It was in the beginning, it was toys for boys. There were technology interested surgeons who said, oh, this is interesting. I want to work with that. Mm -hmm. So the majority of the other surgeons, they didn't want it because it was only making their life more difficult because it's not so easy to work with a, a robot and to train be trained uh, and, for months and on be end. trained uh and and it's not so easy to work with uh with technology so you have to and the look other for thing your, is they, they your... always want to be in control so you have to look for your early adopters so to say yes so yeah. a yes. group of people that is open-minded um and interested enough invested enough to 
not only open-minded, but you also need critical people mm -hmm. because otherwise critical you friends. only, oh, yeah, yeah, critical friends, because otherwise you can only get people that believe in your solution uh, and, and are actually, uh, well, they're, they're from the same church, I would say, because you preach for the converted, but actually you have to convert the, the heathens. You have to convert the ones who do not believe that this is going to be uh, successful. So you also need the most technology at first uh, surgeons. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what we also did. So we we gave the machine to people who did not know anything about the development and said, try it. It should be foolproof. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> foolproof. Um, yeah. Made by fools for fools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you, you mentioned there that they want to still be in control. Yes. And this is also imperative because on the one side, I mean, you do have those that are interested in teleoperative robotics. So, so sitting in the safety of a console or behind the observation room while uh, handling the, the, the robotic systems. Of course, they are still the humans in the loop that without them, there is no robotic surgery. But primarily for them still to be conducting the surgery, it, I, in my opinion, is smart to bring in a solution that is a choice and could be considered as an assistive device while they are still in their comfort zone, sitting in the exact same spot that they have become. I, we observe physically in, in operating theaters at hospitals and that there is a sense of human camaraderie in that operating theater. So they all have their, their, their positions. They all have their tasks and responsibilities. The surgeon is talking very calmly. It's not like in house or Grey's Anatomy where everything is chaotic and blood everywhere, except perhaps in the emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. But with these, um, uh, these catheterizations and the, uh, um, laparoscopic surgeries. It's really calm. So you also have to uh, maybe put on the glasses of an, or, or also have an anthropological view. You also have to study how they uh, these people work together yeah. and how your solution can be made part of that of that entire In ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but there's, there's also a new generation of surgeons coming. Uh, because to the you, table, <laughs> to the sorry? OR, to the table, to the yeah, OR yeah, table, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's also a new generation of people. Uh, so we are more uh, looking into the environment. We are looking more towards uh, sharing our world with others. So it is less ecocentric than it was. Uh, so it's and that 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 also is true for medicine, although it's very conventional. Uh, they're not changing very rapidly. Um, so it means that the, the view of how an operating theater is, because you went to an operating theater, which was calm, but it can also be very messy. Uh, and it used to be very bossy uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. But uh, depending, the, depending on, of course, on the discipline that we like. No, depending on the surgeon. I mean, the, it was the person that made made uh, the the teamwork. And that's actually also here, like we're sitting sitting here. It's It's depending on... Who's on the table, and do you really listen to each other, or do yeah. you just ventilate your uh, your um, your opinion, mm -hmm. and then sit back and say, "Okay, now I don't listen to the rest anymore. I wait until my but turn." But do you is. do you refer only to transfusion 
surgeries? No, no, no. In or, general, or just in, in general. In general, I I really see it as a very positive okay. uh, change in actually in the world for seeing other people, mm-hmm. and 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 there is also more accepted for people. I'm a biologist. I'm not a me- I'm not a medic, but I worked now for twenty years at the Department of Surgery. And I like I love surgeons, yeah, uh, uh, because they are they are uh, really solving issues, yeah. But and, and they want to also improve on yes what they are used to now, yes, because they see the value in it. Yes, they're very open minded. So if your ro- robot can do something they can do, they are very positive. Yeah, if the robot can do exactly the same as they can do, they're not really interested. Yeah, because then you're just replacing. Their job. Their job. Yeah. And that, and they, that and they don't want. And they love the, their job. Exactly. Okay. So if we would have to make up uh, a list, which human factors sh- do we have to take into account when developing these state-of-the-art surgical tools, robotics systems? Elisabeth, I'm looking to you for uh, like the, the first bullet points. Well, I think the first thing is you have to talk to the people. And as an engineer, I also have to admit that I don't know better what should happen in the OR. And I think that's that's the very first point that you need to take, that as an engineer, you can facilitate and you can help. And the other point that on the other side, the surgeons might need to take is that it's about describing what the problem is. What we very often face is that we come somewhere and that people say, can you build me that solution? And then you're like, yeah, I can build you that solution. But is this solution really solving your problem? And there is something where we need to go more into open discussion Mm -hmm. and talk to each other and also very carefully listen to each other. What is actually the problem? And what are the technologies that could be helping? And then, of course, in the end, in the OR, is always the decision of the individual surgeon who is responsible for this particular patient. And he's the only one in this moment who can judge what is best and what tools he might want to use or might not want to use. Okay. No, so so that- to, to breach that gap, basically, that is still existing for some reason. Yeah, this, this gap is something that is very prominent. Yeah. And I think here they try in Hattrick to bridge the gap. Yeah. And also in our education, we have now a biomedical engineering um, program that is taught by both faculties, by the Faculty of Science and Engineering and by the UMCG, so by the medical people, yeah. so that we bring it together and that also the new generation of engineers already knows that there is the expertise and they have to ask first. And that's a very important point that we teach from the first year onwards. First ask, what is really the problem? And then try to think of solutions and not try to think of solutions and bring them somewhere. And then you search you, for a problem. Yeah. And and also, as I, as I understand you, um, not per se embrace the first description of the problem but stay curious and and ask okay you think that that's the problem but um what's underneath yeah Uh, yeah yeah you have to always go to the roots and find out what is really the problem i mean we see that also in everyday life very often we think yeah i could do things and everyone who has a job thinks i i can do things if i get three more people of my profession and we can do more but sometimes you just need another profession to solve the problem. And that's basically translating to every field. And you can translate it also to technical problems. Sometimes not the technology that first pops into your mind is what will solve it. Yeah. 
So to sum up, our mission should be to to bridge the gap and to more often bring people of different disciplines into the same room um, and to try to learn each other's worlds, uh, learn each other's language. Um, yeah, and to be transparent on what you're really capable of doing and what not. Also really important. So know yeah. your limitations so and your one, strengths. One of the old uh, biomedical engineering professors, who's he's already retired, he said, you can always bring more people with a good lunch than with a good uh, discussion together. And I think that's really important that, that you find common grounds and, and having lunch uh, helps just by talking to each other. So what, what is it actually is your problem? And then, the, then people will say it. And then, then you, of course, have to translate it into something that you can understand. And then you have to ask back and also, also have the courage to do this. Is that, do you mean this? Because if then someone says, no, I meant something else, yeah, it might might feel some in so a bit uncomfortable because then There's you're not on the same level. A barrier. Uh, and that, that takes time to to level. Uh, yeah. So many informal meetings, many lunches. Yeah. 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 And to and to uh, reach out to them again and say, Hey, you remember what you discussed? There? Is this what you meant? Is some this is something tangible? Does this is this going in the right direction? And right. then they will also right. uh, provide feedback on that. Okay. Yeah. So from your perspective, what would be the main lessons of this conversation? To start with the problem. Start and, with the problem. And not with the solution. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a nice one. Uh, for me, it's it's the, the interaction that's mm -hmm. most important. Okay, talk to each other and listen. Yeah, and more listen, importantly. Yeah. 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 Elizabeth, last but not least. I would agree that um, to get technology or to use technology to the best of uh, for all of us and we all might become patient one day so that we can use the technology best, we should um, facilitate the interdisciplinary work and talk to each other, talk to as much people as you can and then you'll find the solutions. Amen to that. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Christoph, Henry and Elisabeth. Uh, I think we learned a lot, uh, not only about the newest developments in technology and robotics in UR, but also about the importance of interdisciplinary work, um, exploring each other's worlds, uh, talking and listening to each other. I would really uh, like to thank you uh, for joining me today. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Um, I think to sum up, if we approach technology and robotics in UR um, as possible ways to empower surgeons and to ensure the best possible outcomes for patients, then these new technologies are really innovative and can make a difference for more healthy years of life. This was already the ninth episode of Innovation Booster, the hat-trick podcast about health technology for more healthy years of life. I would like to thank all the speakers for sharing their stories and their passion for this topic. And if you need help or would like to learn more, have a look at the Hattrick website at htric.com and please get in touch. 